A reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, beginning in the fourth chapter. We do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are also being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, look, I don't want to stir controversy right out of the gate here. And I don't want to come off as anti-American, but this war that we are fighting with the rest of the world has just got to end. Am I right? I mean, why won't we adopt the metric system, guys? It just makes so much sense. Tired of having to Google conversion rates. I learned recently that the meter was actually redefined in the early 80s. Science nerds, do you guys know this? Yeah. So I'm probably going to get this a little bit wrong. Just tell me afterwards, all right? I'll pretend like I'm listening. So as you no doubt know, from 1960 to 1983, the meter was defined as 1,650,763.73 wavelengths of the orange-red radiation of Krypton-86 under specified conditions, obviously. <laughs> but now, since the early 80s, it's defined as an enormous fraction that I won't tell you because it's just too much info. But really what it is, is it's a fraction of the distance that light travels in a vacuum in one second. I don't actually understand any of this, except to say that we used to have variations in measurement. Meters weren't always exactly the same length, right? We used to have variations in measurement until we realized that the speed of light in a vacuum is such a fundamental constant of nature that we now use the speed of light to give us the most exact definition of a measurement of length. Is that basically correct? Okay, all right, good. Light is incredible. I mean, this, this building, your house, your car, everything that we do that takes measurement is now being based off of the constancy of light. If you remember from your seventh grade biology class, the light of the sun is one of the key ingredients needed for plants to develop the proper sugars and starches that can then provide energy for literally everything else, all other living things. Which is to say the sun doesn't just allow us to see, though we require its light for our eyes to process, 
And it doesn't just keep us warm. It is actually responsible for providing most of the energy necessary for life on Earth. Lack of light isn't just darkness. It's death. In St. Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, he is writing to a confused and chaotic congregation. They were obsessed with spiritual phenomena and ecstatic experiences, while at the same time they were wildly misusing the gift of sex for their own selfish ends. They would gather for liturgical feasts, but the rich would exclude and look down upon the poor. They became enamored with the glitz and glamour of some strong personalities that Paul refers to in this letter sarcastically as super-apostles. And it led them to fracture and division, each person having their own celebrity pastor to follow. Any of this sound familiar? And the Corinthians actually began to wonder. They, They became so enamored with these successful glittery super apostles, they began to wonder to themselves, do we really need to listen to Paul? Because Paul the apostle had sent them some pretty difficult things to hear. And they started to think to themselves, I mean, he doesn't have a book deal. He doesn't have a professional podcast. There are no well-lit headshots on his website. But these other super apostles, they really seem to have it together. They're going places. The Corinthians were using a faulty form of measurement, and it was leading to their destruction. And in our text this evening, Paul reminds them that he is measured by the most constant thing that exists, the thing that never changes. He is measured by something of such surpassing glory. Paul tells them that the same God who created light the light that now gives energy and life to the entire cosmos, light that is so constant that we measure everything by it, the same God who created light by calling it into being, saying, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown light into Paul's heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Essentially, Paul is saying to them, you want an apostle of glory? How about the one that has been illuminated with the very light of God? I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that our our thirst for glory is not in itself wrong. It's just that we don't aim high enough. And Paul is telling this very same thing to the Corinthians. They were settling for celebrities with big personalities, and he's trying to give them uncreated light. The Corinthians did want an apostle of glory, but they failed to perceive it in Paul because they failed to maintain in their imaginations the paradox that is at the core of the gospel, that the exaltation of Jesus Christ was in the lifting up of his body on the cross. This, in a very strange way, is glory in the Christian religion. Paul has adopted this paradox as his way of doing ministry, and it was what was causing such a scandal in the Corinthian church. They just couldn't see it. They couldn't see the light for what it was. Paul has been given authority and responsibility to proclaim the news of the glory of Christ, and in so doing, in embracing this paradox, Paul has declared himself to be the slave of the churches. 
He tells them that he doesn't declare anything about himself. He only declares Jesus Christ as Lord. And the only self-referential thing that he says is, and myself as your slave for Christ's sake. So Paul says that this treasure, the glory of Christ being shown forth in his heart by the very same God who created light, that priceless treasure is in a clay jar. And the clay jar is the fragile, brittle, all but destroyed body of St. Paul. Paul glories in his frail and beleaguered body because it makes more clear that the glory and the power of the gospel belong to God and not to his messengers. The point of the gospel is not to become enamored with the person who's telling you about it. It's to become enamored with Christ himself. And Paul has discovered that in embracing his weakness and frailty, the message becomes even clearer Spiritual power is a fascinating thing, isn't it? Anybody watch Wild Wild Country? Yeah? Okay, if you've seen the documentary series, you, you know, and if you're from Oregon, then you know anyway, about the Rajneesh in central Oregon. And in the documentary, you saw a handful of people, like maybe four, that had enough charisma and gravitas and power that they could attempt to build an empire such as it was. And people from all over the world would follow them and do whatever they told them to do. This same obsession with spiritual power and pride and control and glory marks far too much of Christian culture in the West. Doesn't it? So here's an application point for you already. Pray for me. Pray for our bishops. Pray for one another that we would not be sucked into this false glory, but would rather have eyes to see and ears to hear and noses to smell, as Paul said earlier in his letter, that he and the band of apostles are the aroma of Christ. But just like the rest of the paradoxes that the Corinthians can't seem to pick up on, this one's a paradox too. The aroma of Christ to those that are perishing, he says, is an aroma from death to death. But to those who are being saved, it is an aroma from life to life. We need to have all of our senses transfigured and redeemed by the Holy Spirit to understand what true life, true glory, true power really are. You see, the subtext of this entire letter has been about Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel which is something that the Corinthian church started to view as a liability. Paul was most likely blind. And as he'll say toward the end of the letter, he had been beaten with rods multiple times, whipped nearly to death multiple times, stoned and shipwrecked. I was at a preaching conference the other day with a guy who, who deals with images, and he told us, took us to the passage where Paul describes the, the ways that he was beaten, and he told us to visualize Paul's body and the hands that would have been raised above his head to protect his head from boulders that were being cast down upon him. I mean, Paul is not a guy that you're going to put pictures of on the front page of your website. He's just not. He's not the kind of person that you're going to spend time gazing at. He would have been hobbled and scarred. He would have been, at best, as politely as I can put it, visually difficult to take in. Many of his wounds had probably never healed correctly. 
In our text this evening, Paul says, quote, we are afflicted in every way, meaning we are undergoing this ongoing suffering that is pervasive. It is physical, mental, emotional, economic. And the PTSD and psychological fracturing that result leave Paul feeling, as he says, perplexed. You guys remember Braveheart? Do you remember, do you remember the scene where, I, I, it's been too long, do you remember the scene where uh, Mel Gibson's character discovers that the guy that he was counting on betrayed him? He, he rips his helmet off, and the guy was supposed to support him, but he, he betrayed him. Remember that look on Mel Gibson's face? That's perplexed. That's when you feel like you have been utterly disregarded. Your life has just been torn apart, and you have nowhere to turn because the person you thought, turns out they're not who they were. That's what Paul's getting at. It's not just like a little bit confused. It's like, man, is, is this really it? This is new life in Christ? To just go about dying all the time? And yet he says he is not driven to despair. He says that he's persecuted and struck down, which is a euphemism for death, right? When you strike someone down, they're not getting back up. And yet somehow he is not destroyed. So when Paul says he is carrying about in his body the dying of Jesus, he's not really being hyperbolic. He has been marked in his body with torture and death, and somehow it is a mystical participation in the sufferings of Christ so that the resurrection life of Christ can be put on display. The apostolic stigmata is actually a place where the light shines through, but you have to be given eyes to see it. Because to the human eye, it just looks like weakness and failure. And yet this is the legacy and the heritage of the faith that we profess. That Christ works out his glory in profound suffering. I mean, just, just think again the phrase that Paul uses to allude to Genesis 1. He says that God is the one who says, let light shine out of the darkness. You see what he's doing? It is in the dark night of suffering that the light of Christ's glory is made manifest. The light doesn't just shine out of more light. It shines where there is no light. And that's where it brings God's glory to bear in the world. Now, there are a couple of things I think that need to be said here. The first is that suffering in a world created by a good God doesn't make sense. Okay? It just doesn't. You can read as much apologetics as you want to about why a good girl, uh, why a good God would create a world in which bad things happen. It doesn't make sense. Evil doesn't make sense. There is no way to catalog it and quantify it. The only thing that the church can do is point to Christ on the cross and then sit in silence before the mystery that God himself would enter into our suffering. Right? And secondly, I, I honestly cannot believe that this needs to be contradicted. But suffering for the gospel does not involve putting yourself or keeping yourself in abusive situations. And any church leader that tells you different is going to be ready for a world of awakening when they stand before God. 
that the church would even be confused on this is horrifying and disgusting. The church of Christ is to bring his protective and healing power to the weak and vulnerable, not glorify suffering in and of itself, okay? No room for gray here. It is not suffering for the gospel to stay in an abusive marriage or an abusive home. Domestic violence and abuse must be condemned. And of course, of course, God's forgiveness extends to the perpetrators of violence. But that is a separate issue from suggesting that victims of abuse should remain in abusive situations or be made to come and face their tormentors somehow right away. And frankly, the church needs to do a much better job discovering what repentance actually looks like. All right. I'm off my hobby horse. Another thing I think to consider in the idea that Christ's glory is made manifest in suffering is that the global church is undergoing persecution and suffering at an incredible rate. Scholars suggest it's actually the highest that it has ever been. We just came up on, what, the, the one-year anniversary of the beheading of the Coptic martyrs? There are entire Christian villages being decimated and burned to the ground. There are people being imprisoned and tortured for their faith in Christ. These things are happening to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. We should not be blind to it, and it should lead us to a couple of conclusions. The first is that getting disagreed with on Facebook isn't suffering. Sorry. But to claim that we are facing persecution because our neighbors and friends don't agree with our political views does an incredible disservice to those whose lives are at risk simply for believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And secondly, I think we need to recognize in the, in the persecution of the church throughout the world, we need to recognize that to truly live with Christ as Lord is to walk at some level in contradiction to the world around us. But this contradiction exists right here in this same space of paradox. It is a place of weakness, not an assertion of rights. It is a place of humility, not an assumption that we're better than anyone else. It is a place of service, not a consumption of everything around us. Right? If you're a jerk <laughs> in the way that you talk to people about your beliefs and they get mad at you, that is also not suffering for the gospel. Suffering for being a jerk. And it's to have completely lost this. Was Christ asserting his rights in this moment? We have a lot of work to do in our political theology, don't we? And the way that we embody it in our communities. Here's the last thing I think needs to be said about Christ's glory being made manifest in suffering. To declare that Christ is Lord is to live in defiance of the empires of this world, whether they be the empires of greed and sexual self-absorption or the empires of nationalism and tribalism. If you are a follower of Christ, I honestly don't see how it's possible to fit squarely in any of the political and cultural molds that are on offer in our society. But even here, in our alliance to the kingdom of Christ, in defiance of the various worldly and personal kingdoms that we have built for ourselves, we must take care. We must 
recognize that we have a Corinthian problem. We are far too easily enamored with counterfeit glory, and we are far too easily embarrassed by weakness and being culturally unacceptable. But the good news is our Corinthian problem has an apostolic solution. We'll see this next week as we continue in Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he says that this slight and momentary affliction, (laughs) here's a guy who has cheated death probably eight times or more. This slight and momentary affliction cannot hold sway over the eternal weight of glory being prepared for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we be those who have been called out of darkness and into his light. May we be those who have been given the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing, an aroma of death to death, but to those who are being saved, an aroma from life to life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.